Chapter Two of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Daly. On the thirtieth day of June, eighteen ninety seven, I graduated at Yale. Had I then realized that I was a sick man, I could and would have taken a rest. But in a way, I had become accustomed to the ups and downs of a nervous existence, and as I could not really afford a rest, six days after my graduation I entered upon the duties of a clerk in the office of the collector of taxes in the city of New Haven. I was fortunate in securing a position at that time, for the hours were comparatively short, and the work as congenial as any could have been under the circumstances. I entered the tax office with the intention of staying only until such time as I might secure a position in New York. About a year later, I secured the desired position. After remaining in it for eight months, I left it, in order to take a position which seemed to offer a field of endeavor more to my taste. From May 1899 to the middle of June 1900, I was a clerk in one of the smaller life insurance companies, whose home office was within a stone's throw of what some men consider the center of the universe. To be in the very heart of the financial district of New York appealed strongly to my imagination. As a result of the contagious ideals of Wall Street, the making of money was then a passion with me. I wished to taste the bitter sweet of power based on wealth. For the first eighteen months of my life in New York, my health seemed no worse than it had been during the preceding three years. But the old dread still possessed me. I continued to have my more and less nervous days, weeks, and months. In March 1900, however, there came a change for the worse. At that time I had a severe attack of grip, which incapacitated me for two weeks. As was to be expected in my case, this illness seriously depleted my vitality and left me in a frightfully depressed condition, a depression which continued to grow upon me until the final crash came on June 23, 1900. The events of that day, seemingly disastrous as then viewed, but evidently all for the best as the issue proved, forced me along paths traveled by thousands, but comprehended by few. I had continued to perform my clerical duties until June 15. On that day I was compelled to stop, and that at once. I had reached a point where my will had to capitulate to unreason, that unscrupulous usurper. My previous five years as a neurasthenic had led me to believe that I had experienced all the disagreeable sensations an overworked and unstrung nervous system could suffer. But on this day, several new and terrifying sensations seized me and rendered me all but helpless. My condition, however, was not apparent even to those who worked with me at the same desk. I remember trying to speak and at times finding myself unable to give utterance to my thoughts. Though I was able to answer questions, the fact hardly diminished my feeling of apprehension, for a single failure in an attempt to speak will stagger any man no matter what his state of health. I tried to copy certain records in the day's work, but my hand was too unsteady, 
and I found it difficult to read the words and figures presented to my tired vision in blurred confusion. That afternoon, conscious that some terrible calamity was impending, but not knowing what would be its nature, I performed a very curious act. Certain early literary efforts which had failed of publication in the college paper, but which I had jealously cherished for several years, I utterly destroyed. Then, after a hurried arrangement of my affairs, I took an early afternoon train and was soon in New Haven. Home life did not make me better, and except for three or four short walks, I did not go out of the house at all until June 23rd, when I went in a most unusual way. To relatives I said little about my state of health, beyond the general statement that I had never felt worse, a statement which, when made by a neurasthenic, means much, but proves little. For five years I had had my ups and downs, and both my relatives and myself had begun to look upon these as things which would probably be corrected in and by time. The day after my homecoming I made up my mind, or that part of it which was still within my control, that the time had come to quit business entirely and take a rest of months. I even arranged with a younger brother to set out at once for some quiet place in the White Mountains, where I hoped to steady my shattered nerves. At this time I felt as though in a tremor from head to foot, and the thought that I was about to have an epileptic attack constantly recurred. On more than one occasion I said to friends that I would rather die than live an epileptic, Yet, if I rightly remember, I never declared the actual fear that I was doomed to bear such an affliction. Though I held the mad belief that I should suffer epilepsy, I held the sane hope, amounting to belief, that I should escape it. This fact may account, in a measure, for my six years of endurance. On the 18th of June I felt so much worse that I went to my bed and stayed there until the 23rd. During the night of the 18th, my persistent dread became a false belief, a delusion. What I had long expected, I now became convinced, had at last occurred. I believed myself to be a confirmed epileptic, and that conviction was stronger than ever held by a sound intellect. The half-resolve, made before my mind was actually impaired, namely that I would kill myself rather than live the life I dreaded, now divided my attention with the belief that the stroke had fallen. From that time my one thought was to hasten the end, for I felt that I should lose the chance to die should relatives find me in an attack of epilepsy. Considering the state of my mind and my inability at that time to appreciate the enormity of such an end as I have contemplated, my suicidal purpose was not entirely selfish. That I had never seriously contemplated suicide is proved by the fact that I had not provided myself with the means of accomplishing it, despite my habit, as long been remarked by my friends, of preparing even for unlikely contingencies. So far as I had the control of my faculties, it must be admitted that I deliberated, but strictly speaking, the rash act which followed cannot correctly be called an attempt at suicide, for how can a man who is not himself kill himself. Soon my disordered brain was busy with schemes for death. 
I distinctly remember one which included a row on Lake Whitney, near New Haven. This I intended to take in the most unstable boat obtainable. Such a craft could be easily upset, and I should so bequeath to relatives and friends a sufficient number of reasonable doubts to rob my death of the usual stigma. I also remember searching for some deadly drug which I hoped to find about the house, but the quantity and quality of what I found were not such as I dared to trust. I then thought of severing my jugular vein, even going so far as to test against my throat the edge of a razor which, after the deadly impulse first asserted itself, I had secreted in a convenient place. I really wished to die, but so uncertain and ghastly a method did not appeal to me. Nevertheless, had I felt sure that in my tremulous frenzy I could accomplish the act with skillful dispatch, I should at once have ended my troubles. My imaginary attacks were now recurring with distracting frequency, and I was in constant fear of discovery. During these three or four days I slept scarcely at all, even the medicine given to induce sleep having little effect. Though inwardly frenzied, I gave no outward sign of my condition. Most of the time I remained quietly in bed. I spoke but seldom. I had practically, though not entirely, lost the power of speech, but my almost unbroken silence aroused no suspicions as to the seriousness of my condition. By a process of elimination, all suicidal methods but one had at last been put aside. On that one, my mind now centered. My room was on the fourth floor of the house, one of a block of five, in which my parents lived. The house stood several feet back from the street. The sills of my windows were a little more than thirty feet above the ground. Under one was a flag pavement, extending from the house to the front gate. Under the other was a rectangular coal hole covered with an iron grating. This was surrounded by flagging over a foot in width, and connecting it and the pavement proper was another flag, so that all along the front of the house stone or iron filled a space at no point less than two feet in width. It required little calculation to determine how slight the chance of surviving a fall from either of those windows. About dawn I arose. Stealthily I approached a window, pushed open the blinds, and looked out. And down. Then I closed the blinds as noiselessly as possible and crept back to bed. I had not yet become so irresponsible that I dared to take the leap. Scarcely had I pulled up the covering when a watchful relative entered my room, drawn thither, perhaps, by the protecting presence which love inspires. I thought her words revealed a suspicion that she had heard me at the window, but speechless as I was, I had enough speech to deceive her. For of what account are truth and love when life itself has ceased to seem desirable? The dawn soon hid itself in the brilliancy of a perfect June day. Never had I seen a brighter to look at, never a darker to live through, or a better to die upon. Its very perfection in the songs of the robins, which at that season were plentiful in the neighborhood, served but to increase my despair and make me the more willing to die. As the day wore on, 
my anguish became more intense, but I managed to mislead those about me by uttering a word now and then, and feigning to read a newspaper, which to me, however, appeared an unintelligible jumble of type. My brain was in a ferment. It felt as if pricked by a million needles at white heat. My whole body felt as though it would be torn apart by the terrific nervous strain under which I labored. Shortly after noon, dinner having been served, my mother entered the room and asked me if she should bring me some dessert. I assented. It was not that I cared for the dessert. I had no appetite. I wished to get her out of the room, for I believed myself to be on the verge of another attack. She left at once. I knew that in two or three minutes she would return. The crisis seemed at hand. It was now or never for liberation. She had probably descended one of the three flights of stairs when, with the mad desire to dash my brains out on the pavement below, I rushed to that window which was directly over the flag-walk. Providence must have guided my movements, for in some otherwise unaccountable way, on the very point of hurling myself out bodily, I chose to drop feet foremost instead. With my fingers I clutched for a moment to the sill, then I let go. In falling my body turned so as to bring my right side toward the building. I struck the ground a little more than two feet from the foundation of the house, and at least three to the left of the point from which I started. Missing the stone pavement by not more than three or four inches, I struck on the comparatively soft earth. My position must have been almost upright, for both heels struck the ground squarely. The concussion slightly crushed one heel-bone, and broke most of the small bones in the arch of each foot, but there was no mutilation of the flesh. As my feet struck the ground, my right hand struck hard against the front of the house, and it is probable that these three points of contact, dividing the force of the shock, prevented my back from being broken. As it was, it narrowly escaped a fracture and for several weeks afterward it felt as if powdered glass had been substituted for cartilage between the vertebrae. I did not lose consciousness even for a second, and the demonical dread which had possessed me from June 1894 until this fall to earth just six years later was dispelled the instant I struck the ground. At no time since have I experienced one of my imaginary attacks, nor has my mind even for a moment entertained such an idea. The little demon which had tortured me relentlessly for so many years evidently lacked the stamina which I must have had to survive the shock of my suddenly arrested flight through space. That the very delusion which drove me to a death-loving desperation should so suddenly vanish which seemed to indicate that many a suicide might be averted if the person contemplating it could find the proper assistance when such a crisis impends. End Chapter 2